This is an ABC podcast. She was in her 30s and being a police officer, very strong and physically fit. But when she came to us, her cancer was in between early and the late. So she was in and out of hospital for several months and she eventually passed away, leaving behind a very heartbroken husband and one baby. Early cervical cancer is completely asymptomatic and we can be walking around feeling completely fine and not know that we've got cervical cancer. So it doesn't cause pain, it doesn't cause lumps and bumps, but it does cause irregular bleeding between your periods and bleeding after sex once cervical cancer is well established. Even though they, a lot of people say it's a death sentence, I felt like that at first. You know, I, I don't actually feel that way. You have to be a fighter. And that's what I have been all along. And it's kept me going. Cervical cancer is a leading cause of premature death and disability in the Pacific among women. And it's a rapidly growing crisis. All the data says that once a woman is diagnosed with cervical cancer in the Pacific, the risk of dying is among the highest in the world. Across our region, cultural stigmas, shyness and modesty can mean that women are not so well informed about our bodies. And often we hesitate to ask important questions about our health. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about cervical cancer in the Pacific. Let me ask you a personal question. When was your last pap smear? I told you it was personal, didn't I? But I asked it because the answer is really important. And that's because early detection of cervical cancer could save your life. The medical advice is you should have a pap smear every two to three years. Even if you've been vaccinated against the human papilloma virus. In the Pacific, it's estimated that each year, 1,000 new cervical cancer cases are diagnosed, and there are 500 preventable deaths from the disease. And that's a tragedy. It's something Dr. Mary Rose Bagita has seen far too many times in her job as an obstetrician and gynecologist at Port Mosby General Hospital in Papua New Guinea. I remember a few years ago we had a young police officer She had one or two very young children, but she was in her 30s. Being a police officer, very strong and physically fit. But when she came to us, her cancer was in between early and the late. So we did the surgery knowing that the tumor had extended just a little bit more than we were happy with. She was well for a short while, and then a couple of months later, the tumor had grown back and caused more problems. So she was in and out of hospital for several months and she eventually passed away, leaving behind a very heartbroken husband and one baby. When we talked to the relatives such as we're not able to do any more than what we've already done, we're not able to offer anything else except supportive treatment, it's a bit difficult. People coming to you for assistance and we are helpless because there's no other means in which we can help. That's very upsetting to hear, isn't it? 
And sadly, it's not just one family affected by this disease. It's thousands across the Pacific. Even if you are diagnosed with cervical cancer, the treatment options across the Pacific are very poor. Chemotherapy and radiotherapy are quite often not available, meaning women need to travel overseas for treatment. And that's costly. And for most women, simply not an option. In most remote areas, women don't even have access to health care and walk many hours to reach the nearest center. And once they reach a health center, there's inadequate screening and treatment available. The good news is that there are lots of highly qualified, passionate practitioners in our region trying to make a difference, like Dr. Bagita, and we'll come back to her later in the episode. But first, I want to take a look at what causes cervical cancer. Dr. Amanda Il is an obstetrician and gynecologist and partner in the Pacific Islands Cervix Cancer Screening Initiative. Cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus, and there are a variety of them, but we know that there is a certain number that are problematic and the primary cause for almost all cervical cancer. So it's a viral infection. What symptoms might a woman notice if she has uh, cervical cancer? Cervical cancer is interesting in that there are really no symptoms. So a woman can have pre-cancer stage or she can have early cervical cancer and not feel unwell. And that's the scary thing with cervical cancer. When cervical cancer does cause symptoms, the common ones would be bleeding in between your periods and bleeding after intercourse. But generally, you won't get those symptoms until cervical cancer is well established. So early cervical cancer is completely asymptomatic and we can be walking around feeling completely fine and not know that we've got cervical cancer. Uh, Dr. Ellie, is there a certain age group that this is common with women or any age group at all? I guess the other good thing with cervical cancer is it takes a while to grow. Uh, You can be exposed to cervical cancer as a young lady and then if you've got any other medical conditions that make your immune system weaker, you will develop cervical cancer. Usually we'd see it over the age of 30, commonly about 40, 50, 60. So it's not a disease that we would see in the younger women, but exposure begins in the younger women or when we start having intercourse, unprotected intercourse. So generally the 30 and over are the women that we would be more interested in screening because that's when we would expect to be able to see positive results for cervical cancer. You mentioned it developing. Is it important that young girls also have pap smears and tests to prevent it getting to a worse stage? The best strategy for preventing getting cervical cancer is actually vaccination. And you combine vaccination with screening. And that generally is an excellent combination for preventing and reducing your chances of getting cervical cancer. So Vaccination with the HPV vaccine is now available for young girls. And in Fiji, we started doing this in 2009, and it was being given to girls at the end of primary school, at the beginning of high school, so I think between the ages of 9 and 12. And that isn't to mean that we expect them to become sexually active, but it it just starts to develop protection in their systems so that when they become mature adults, they've got the protection in place. And that's a great proven preventative measure against cervical cancer globally. The other strategy would be regular cervical cancer screening with pap smears or HPV testing 
which is now also a new strategy. And why is cervical cancer so common in the Pacific region compared to other countries? The Pacific region is primarily low and middle-income countries, and we don't all have established screening programs for cervical cancer like New Zealand and Australia do. So that's one. We also have different sociodemographic challenges. Poverty is a big one. Access to healthcare is another. Within the healthcare system, we don't always have the appropriate resources, so we don't have resources to be able to treat cervical cancer once it's established. We don't have radiotherapy, we don't have chemotherapy. And so this is probably why in in Fiji and the Pacific, cervical cancer is a significant burden of disease as compared to New Zealand and Australia, where you've got your screening program so you can address the issue at a prevention stage. You've got excellent healthcare in terms of cancer treatment. So even if a woman has got cervical cancer, she's got options for treatment. In Fiji and the Pacific, we don't have that. Uh, I know Fiji, I think Samoa has started, Vanuatu have started, Tonga planning to start the HPV vaccination program. So that's a screening program, but none of us have radiotherapy to to treat. And so that may explain why the burden of disease of cervical cancer is a lot more higher in Fiji and the Pacific. You must have worked with Many women who have cervical cancer in the region, are there any cases uh, throughout your work that really stand out for you? Cervical cancer, for me, is a heartbreaking disease because it's so preventable. And I think the one that that will stay with me for a long time is a young Fijian of Indian descent woman who was diagnosed with cervical cancer in her pregnancy. And the sad thing with this, she has passed on, but she had three children and her youngest was two, and she'd come to the hospital for her clinics with her children in tow. We ended up having to terminate the pregnancy so that we could try and manage her cervical cancer, but unfortunately, because of social issues, uh, lack of support, one of the children becoming sick, she ended up not being able to complete follow-up, and we weren't able to get treatment for her, and she eventually eventually died. Uh, Her case will always stay with me for a long time because of the tragedy. She was in her 30s and it could have been prevented. So how can we women reduce this from happening and reduce the number of cervical cancer? I think increasing the awareness. There are lots of facets and through the media, we can promote awareness to get vaccinated. So in vaccinate all our young girls. I think Australia also allows vaccination for boys and that's fantastic. Uh, we should be promoting regular screening. So that's at that level. But also it requires political stability. Uh, that There's got to be support from our international and local leaders. There's got to be a coordinated support between our different partners so that women can access health care. So in Fiji, Papua New Guinea, it, it isn't always possible to get to health centres where you've got trained healthcare workers to provide vaccinations. You may not have the vaccinations available, provide HPV screening or pap smears. Uh, In Fiji at one stage, we weren't able to provide pap smears because we didn't have uh, pathology services. The population need to want to do it. They need to feel safe that it's not going to be harmful. It's at all levels, Hilda, you know, Mm. community awareness, village awareness. The woman herself needs to know that it's not a harmful procedure the way that she'll know that is if she's got healthcare workers that are going to be kind and caring and compassionate and not hurt her when they're performing these procedures. 
then you need to have it available and you need to be able to treat it, I guess, once you've got a problem. So if we're performing pap smears and we don't have a resource to treat cervical cancer, that almost becomes an ethical issue. So it's a big issue. But it it isn't impossible. And I think there is a global commitment to eliminating cervical cancer by 2030. And there are several steps that are required. But it is about vaccinating girls. It is about making regular screening available. And I think those are the two priorities. Dr. Il, you're also a co-founder of the Pacific Island Cervix Cancer Screening Initiative. What does your work with this involve? What we do in Fiji is we have been looking at using vaginal swabs to pick up the HPV virus and using machinery to detect the presence of the HPV virus within an hour so that we are able to identify cases that are positive and offer them treatment on the spot. And the advantage of this is women can travel for up to a few hours to get to a health centre to have the test. And if we're able to give them a result and offer them treatment in the same bus fare, then that's a lot more effective. You've introduced a new screening procedure for women after identifying that they were embarrassed to participate in screening services with health workers. How does that screening program work? So this is using a swab to insert into the vagina and they can test themselves for the, the virus. They pop it in, they take a swab, they put it into the container and hand it to the nurse or the doctor that's looking after the clinic. Then we would add those to the gene expert machine and within an hour or two, they would be able to get the result. At the end of a day of collecting samples, the patients would be asked how they felt about that process. And I think it was quite novel because it was new and it was not something that they were expecting. Previously, they'd need to come meet a strange person and have a pap smear done. And this one, they would be shown to a private room where they could do their own smear. And I think there were a few giggles initially. <laughs> um, with, with careful instruction, it was it was quite interesting. And we felt that, you know, if we're able to protect patients' integrity and their mm, dignity, mm. that it would be taken up a lot more easier. And so the advertisement went out to say, hey, you know, rock up, come with a friend. You can do your own swabs. But I guess the other thing I should add is that we were double-checking all these patients who qualified to have a self-swab. So they would do a swab themselves and then we would do a pap smear and we'd compare to make sure the test that they conducted on themselves was accurate because our test also gave the same result. Isn't this such a great option to keep up to date with your screenings? And let's hope Dr. Amanda Il continues their great work with the Pacific Island Cervix Cancer Screening Initiative so we can defeat cervical cancer by 2030. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia. When Monica Bowden Kirby was diagnosed with cervical cancer in Fiji, she experienced a roller coaster of emotions. First of all, I was in denial. I uh, was very scared and I've only heard about cancer. My mom died of cancer, but I wasn't so uh, well versed with what it is until I went through that journey. Monica went to the doctor when she suspected there was something wrong. I was actually diagnosed in uh, 2020. I had bleeding in between my menses. I thought that was normal. So I went to the doctors and they passed me back and forth. Some said I had fibrosis. I shouldn't worry about it. It'll go away. But it kept coming. I kept bleeding, which wasn't normal. I run a homestay here in Fiji. One of my guests was a doctor, and, and she really insisted that I go to a professional. 
And that's when they finally diagnosed me after biopsy. And Monica, you seem to have a really positive um, outlook on life. Uh, but what was it like when you were told you have a very short time to live with uh, cervical cancer? When I was in New Zealand, that's when they actually told me my uh, timeline. <laughs> they told me I had only six months to two years. First, my first reaction actually was I laughed. Even though they, a lot of people say it's a death sentence, I felt like that at first. I don't actually feel that way. You have to be a fighter. And that's what I have been all along. And it's kept me going. So you laughed because you didn't believe that that was possible. And um, you just wanted a positive, positive attitude? I actually refused. Firstly, yes, it was my positive attitude. And I actually refused to believe for a human being to tell me, you know, you have only six months to two years. I was like, no, God didn't tell me that. This journey, honestly, couldn't be possible uh, without prayers as well. I believe in that so much. Good on you. And that diagnosis would have been devastating, but not long after, you found out that you were pregnant as well. What went through your mind at that point? People who are doing scans would think it's impossible to be pregnant at that point, but unfortunately I was. Um, I have an older son who's eight years old, and when I found out that I was pregnant, I was quite happy as well. But the doctor said, you know, this is impossible. You can't have baby. If you want to live, you have to terminate your pregnancy. So I really had to think on that and talk with my family and see what I had at that point. When I was told I had a 15% chance to live, I thought, you know, just going to risk it. You know, I'm going to die anyway. I'll have this human being live. So luckily, I was referred to an oncologist in Lot who gave me the option of having chemotherapy uh, while I was pregnant. You know, I had to really think on my options, but she said it was safe to have chemo with baby. And then I, I just went on ahead and I uh, they delivered me a cesarean section at 37 weeks. Wow. Why yeah. couldn't you complete your treatment in Fiji? I understand you went to New Zealand or overseas to get that help. I went overseas because radiation is not offered in Fiji. I was strongly advised that uh, I needed chemotherapy with radiation. As soon as I delivered, I was supposed to go straight away and then the coronavirus happened. So I had to wait another two months to get to New Zealand. I had to leave baby behind and that was the most painful to just deliver, leave baby and go on to New Zealand for treatment. I'm going through quarantine and then wait to get all these tests and scans again. So it took me weeks and weeks until I actually went to treatment. All these trips overseas to get that help, do you pay for it yourself? Actually, I'm very blessed to have my in-laws who have paid for everything. Is there a bit of stigma around this cervical cancer? To be very honest, during the journey, I found out even in hospitals and with the carriers and everyone around me, a lot of people are not very much aware of, of cervical cancer and with all the treatments and with the symptoms. A lot of people have come up to ask me about that. There is not much awareness. And Monica, it's very brave of you to share your story. What do you hope you can achieve from sharing your story with us? If this helps one person to avoid having to go through the journey that I went through, for me having kids, 
it was a bit of a like a torture. Like you wake up every morning thinking, who's going to look after my children and whatnot. So all this that's going on, you can easily avoid that by actually getting checked, you know, have pap smear. Even when you're diagnosed, don't think like for our culture, when you go through having diseases or uh, sicknesses such as cancer, usually they say you're such a bad person, you deserve that. You know, this is, it only happens to bad people. You shouldn't ever feel that way. Don't even think that. This is, to me, a blessing. Wow. Monica, what will be the next stage of your recovery and treatment? What will it, what will it involve? To be honest, when I came back from New Zealand, I was still very weak, but I had my baby to look forward to. I, you have to keep exercising, keep a positive attitude, eat the right foods, be around positive people, change your lifestyle and everything about you that you know is toxic and not good for you and not forget to pray and pray and pray. Good on you. And you mentioned your family was sort of a big support behind you and um, this journey. Oh my goodness. I can't say enough words. They were very supportive. My father-in-law was the number one supportive person. In 1974, he actually drew a drawing of a black bald woman uh, having a brown baby in her tummy, reaching her hands out to the sun. And when I was going through chemotherapy, I'd lost all my hair. And he brought out this drawing and he said, you know, this is destiny. No one said anything negative. My mother-in-law had my back from day one. She always says, we'll go, we'll go down swinging. <laughs> And my eight-year-old son, he always says, mama, there's always hope. You have to ho have hope. So th that has kept me going. Monica Bowden Kirby is so brave and strong. And I have so much respect for her. You've heard that the best way to prevent cervical cancer is to be vaccinated against HPV and then have regular screenings. But for so many countries in the Pacific, we have such a long way to go before we get there. And most women don't know that they have cancer until it's well advanced. Earlier, you heard from Dr. Mary Rose Bagheta, an obstetrician and gynecologist at the Port Mosby General Hospital. She sees this too often. Most of the women actually come quite late. So we have different stages of the cancer. If it's early stage cancer, it will be stage one or at the most stage 2A. But if it's late stage, it will be towards the end, which is stage three and four. We have about two thirds of women will come late. And by late, we mean that we can't really offer them any help according to the means we have available. That's quite a significant number. Two-thirds to three-quarters will come quite late. From then on, it's all what we call palliative care, which means we are just giving them supportive treatment to help relieve the pain and to make them as comfortable as possible until they reach the end of their life. The treatment for the actual cancer itself is either surgery or radiotherapy or both. At the moment, we have surgical services for early-stage cancer. So if they come early and we're able to do the surgery, we can do that. But we don't have the radiotherapy, which is something we used to have many years ago. We had some radiotherapy treatment 
around 2010 to 2015. And then we haven't had any since then. To see women and mothers going to care like this without any help, uh, is that one of the sad scenarios of cervical, cervical cancer in PNG? Definitely. It's like it, definitely sad because a lot of these women are in the reproductive age group in their 30s, 40s, up to their 50s. They have families. Many of them have quite young children. Some of them are also breadwinners for their families. So when they come quite late, it's sad. Sometimes, you know, heartbreaking. <laughs> but as medical people, we have to, you know, show the strong side, show your strong face and try to help them as much as possible. So it's something that it can be prevented, but we really don't have those means yet. Mm. And you mentioned the situation where it's helpless and you can't help, although you are able to help, you don't have the facilities or support to do it. Is it a failure on the part of a government, on the part of the government to sort of improve outcomes for women diagnosed with cervical cancer in PNG? I guess you could say that it has really not been a priority, um, even though we have been assured that it is a priority for the government. It doesn't seem that way. And I think the main issues are that there's so many important illnesses and diseases that we have to deal with. We have cervical cancer that the government needs to help us with. But then we have all these other multiple competing needs requiring the attention of our government. So we also have lifestyle diseases and all the related diseases related to our changing lifestyle. You know, things like diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. Having said that, we're at the stage of trying to come up with a national screening program that will be of benefit to women in the country and a program that will be feasible and sustainable and um, something that the country can afford. The world is moving away from pap smear testing as a screening test for picking up cervical cancer. We're now moving towards HPV testing and treatment. So at the moment, we have our stakeholders working on that program and we're hoping by the end of the year we will have come up with something that we can present to the government. Hopefully Dr. Mary Rose Bagita and her team will be successful in getting that screening program up and running. The thing that stands out for me from my conversations with Amanda, Mary Rose and Monica is that Creating awareness is important in tackling cervical cancer. But I also noticed that distance to healthcare, modesty and stigma around women's bodies are common excuses for not effectively rolling out women's health services in the Pacific. We make up 50% of the population across our islands. But most people would agree that our women's health services are inadequate for dealing with a health crisis like cervical cancer. I hope that one day women's health will become more of a priority for our politicians. Our daughters and granddaughters deserve to have access to affordable treatment facilities and early testing so we can prevent and treat cervical cancer in our own countries. And I'm definitely calling my doctor this week 
to check if my cervical screening is up to date. And you should do, because your life matters. Thank you so much for joining me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, we're also a podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is S-I-S-T-A-S at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, women decolonizing hair in the Pacific. I've definitely come to have a far greater appreciation for it because I know that my hair while it's mine, like it's also a representation of where I come from and who I represent and the blood that runs through my veins. And that's precisely my power as a woman. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented by me, Hilda Wayne. It's produced by Amanda Donigi. Our supervising producer is Inge Stunzner. Executive producer is Justin Kelly. And our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol, and I'll you next time. Thank you.